Hi, Greg Perry, the historic preservationist. Um, Tonight's episode is going to be based around um, producing paint, historical paints, uh, grinding of paints, how paints were produced, um, going back a couple hundred years. So So if, if you're planning to repaint the interior of a house, say before 1860, consider how the first owners would have approached the job before mass production, long-distance railroads, or cans, paint had a very different palette and texture back then, as characteristic of pre-industrial house interiors as hand-painted and hand-planed woodwork. Paint had to be laboriously handmade with such ingredients as clay, bug extracts, lead, arsenic, mercury, sulfur, and boiled oil. The colorful story of early paint chemistry explains why choices were limited and how interiors looked. And a lot of these uh, manufacturers of paint were done in uh, by itinerant painters. So let's talk about ground and oil, how paints were made. Then as now, paint consisted of pigment, which provides the color, disperse in a vehicle or solvent, a liquid that dries into a semi-solid film. A professional painter would come to the house with an assortment of ingredients. And as we just said, he would be itinerant, you know, possibly wanting to trade, sleeping a few nights for a few dollars and having a few meals, uh, sleeping in the barn. Um, Assortment of ingredients, grinders, pots, and other equipment fit for uh, medieval alchemists. Painters had crude, powdered pigments that they mixed into a drying oil, sometimes fish or nut oils, but most often linseed oil made from flax seeds and treated to reduce its drying time. They also used water for whitewash, milk paint, and distempers made from whiting and glue. For the colorful oil paints used on woodwork, The painter ground pigment into into oils using two stones, the muller, a handheld piece, and slab, a flat surface. The longer the pigment was ground with the binder, the finer the particles, better the dispersal, the richer the paint. Each batch measured only ounces and varied greatly. So the painter put all the product into a paint pot and mixed them to provide a relatively consistent color. It might also be amended with more oil and at times a solvent, an evaporative liquid that enhances the spreadability of the paint. Commonly, spirits of turpentine, or what we know today is called turpentine, and that comes from the refinement of the the pine sap. The painter's palette. Unlike today's liquid pigments and dyes, painters had powdered, relatively impure pigments derived from organic matter, minerals, metallic salts, or early chemistry. These methods produced a few dozen pigments, the vast majority of which were imported from Europe and the Far East and supplied by colormen, who sold the supplies for paint making. The expense of each pigment and its effectiveness largely determined how often the color was used So let's talk about some specific colors. White. 
by at least the 17th century, lead's toxicity was known even then. But lead carbonate remained the white pigment of choice. White lead was also used in colored paints as a hiding pigment to provide opacity beyond the color. Tinted pigments were added for color. Other white pigments were whiting, which was chalk essentially, and briefly in the latter half of the 19th century, zinc oxide. Black, the most common source was lamp black, the soot that was collected in an oil lamp for pigment. It was mass produced in furnaces. Bone black and ivory black were made by burning animal remains. Charcoal was also common because it was made from everyday sources. Black was readily available. It was popular for mop board, which was baseboard, because it hid dirt. It was used to make grays. So let's talk about brown. Earthy tones were made of mineral deposits, mined from the soil. Burn umber, made by roasting minerals, replaced rich chocolate browns available cheaply to the widest range of homeowners. Brown was not especially stylish, but like black, was common for areas that attracted dirt. Brown was also used for graining, a craft where paint was used to imitate the grain of exotic woods. Yellow. It was always easy to get yellow, but hard to get bright yellow. Yellow ochre and raw sienna Clays with iron oxide in them were cheap and non-toxic and produced pleasing colors. By the 1820, a major new pigment, chrome yellow, was available. Made by treating lead salt with an alkali, it was much stronger, brighter yellow, and it was cheap. Orange. Red lead, also known as minimum, or orange lead, was made by roasting white lead. It reflected light well and was popular in the 18th century and early 19th centuries for the interiors of cupboards. Red, Spanish brown and Phoenician red, also known as red okra or iron oxide, were made from earth and ferric oxide in the soil. These reds were widely used and many through the 1700s interiors show them as the first interior paint. For a brighter red, vermilion, made from mercury and sulfur, was an expensive alternative. It was rarely used on its own, but painters sometimes mixed it up with other pigments. Since it was cheap, red was especially popular for rooms where guests did not tread, such as kitchens. Blue. In the 17th century, blue was a very difficult color to obtain. Indigo, a ground plant, and small, Crushed bluegrass were very hard to work into oil. Brown lapis lazuli was an extremely expensive blue for the upper class only. Around 1710, Prussian blue, a chemical formulation including hydrochloric acid, dried blood, and potash, and green vitriol, was accidentally discovered. This was the first permanent red, bright blue pigment but it was expensive throughout the 18th century. Prussian blue was a sign of wealth, used in the showrooms of high-style homes, or for a bit more affordability, thin to light blue for moldings. 
Blue was seldom used in secondary rooms such as kitchens. Then around 1828, artificial ultramarine was invented. This synthetic blue was cheap and bright. From the 1840s onward, everyone would enjoy this type of blue. Green, verdigris, made by treating copper with vinegar, was expensive and hard to grind into oil. More effective greens came from mixing yellow okra and Prussian blue to produce a dull green or with indigo, a bright fugitive color, which faded, always faded over time. These were relatively affordable, but not very bright. By the 1820s, chrome green made with chrome, yellow, and Prussian blue became a bright, affordable option. Green in the 19th century was a middle-class paint. So let's talk about the finished look. Just as economics dictated the color palette, the technology of handmade linseed oil paint produced a very distinctive finish, very different than modern products. Texture. Thick, handmade paint had to be pulled and pushed across the surface to spread it. And it didn't self-level, a modern term for paint, the paint's ability to run smooth before it dries. This fact, plus the nature of the brushes used, round, broad-bristled, meant heavy brush strokes dried into the paint. These pronounced high ridges created the effect that restorers now called ropiness. Painters took care to apply paint along the wood's grain. Instruction books of the day described how to paint detailed woodwork so all the strokes lined right up evenly. Reflectability. Modern paints are made with pure, opaque, liquid colors that create a sheet of color on the surface. Old paints, though, consisted of large, random particles of pigment. Orientated differently, each grain reflected light individually, and the paint looked different depending on the light. Plus, the elements of the color were not truly mixed. Modern green reflects green light, but early greens reflected both blue and yellow because the pigment was not truly combined. The paint looked green, but the multiple tones gave it a deeper, richer effect. The gloss. Linseed oil paint dries to a very hard finish, but the gloss level gradually subsided over time. Before electric light, homeowners desired gloss because it enhanced the reflection of natural and early artificial light and it helped to intensify color to increase gloss. Painters often applied a final coat of clear or tinted varnish. This made the surface even glossier, made the sheen more consistent and added color without masking the underlying pigment or bang for the pigment buck, so to speak. By the early 19th century, however, flatter, finish, flatter finishes became uh, much more fashionable and spirits were added to reduce the sheen. Irregularity. Depending on the skills and efforts of the painter, as well as the quality of their pigment, the color might be quite uneven. The pigments were coarsely and unevenly ground, and they were hand-mixed. That meant the grind, the proportions, and the dispersal could vary widely. To modernize, early paint was splotchy and uneven. There might be streaks formed where the paint was brushed on 
or islands of higher pigment concentration. Paint mills improved throughout the 19th century with gearing systems and flywheels added, and then in the 1860s, an effective paint manufacturing process developed. Suddenly, homeowners could buy pre-made paints in a can and apply them themselves, or at least without the aid of a specialized paint maker. It changed the industry, the economics, and the distribution of paint. However, paint looked much the same until the turn of the century. So let's uh, go back a little bit into colonial times about paint, and we'll finish up the episode. Beyond the technology of paint, which changed subtly, subtly, in 1700 to about 1860, ever-evolving fashions dictated how interiors were painted. Trends that began overseas or in American cities gradually made their way to provinces. Here are some basic thoughts on interior paint use in some important architectural periods. For every generalization, though, many exceptions can leap to mind. In colonial times, until the 1700s, Interiors were often left unpainted. By the first decade of that century, however, the common interior decorating scheme began to develop. Plaster surfaces were whitewashed, woodwork doors and door frames, paneling, window frames, mantles, and the like would be painted with a single color of oil paint, pale to medium in density. Surfaces that were exposed to the most wear, such as baseboard fascias, chair rail caps, and window seats were painted dark brown or black. Often, the dark color on the baseboard continued across the doors and door frames to form a continuous paint scheme. This scheme was common for about a century, but was certainly not universal. For example, by the 1720s, wallpaper was available to those who could afford it. For colored moldings, yellows, reds, browns, and what was called stone color, variously cream or gray, were common in the 1720s. And uh, that's it for our uh, mixology portion here on the historic preservationists about paints, adding uh, mixed uh, particles into a carrier. So Greg Perry signing out. Hope everyone enjoyed the, uh, the podcast.